The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And in today's Policy and Focus episode of Talking Indonesia, we'll be discussing the role of the private sector in driving and promoting innovation, and in particular, innovations that meet the needs of marginalised segments of society. What spurs private sector companies to innovate in ways that cater to lower income customers? What forms do these innovations take? And how have governments responded to such innovation? To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Professor Michiko Izuka from the National Graduate Research Institute for Policy Studies, or GRIPS, who, with Gerald Hane, is the author of a three-country study on disruptive and inclusive innovation, which included Indonesia as one of its case studies. Episodes in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia are supported by the Knowledge Sector Initiative, or KSI, a partnership between the Australian and Indonesian governments that aims to improve the use of evidence in development policymaking. Policy and Focus episodes appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Machiko, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great honour to be invited. It's a great pleasure as well to have you on the podcast. Now, could I start by asking, what precisely is disruptive and inclusive innovation? Disruptive and inclusive innovation is a combination of two concepts, disruptive innovation and inclusive innovation. And disruptive innovation is a creation of new value. It is an innovation that forms new market value networks and generates disruption in existing market, firm and products. The idea is defined by Clayton Christensen in 1997. Now, inclusive innovation, innovation that serves marginalized population or underserved population, and these are potential consumers who are currently not served by neither public or private sector. So what I'm trying to do is combining these two concepts. So disruptive inclusive innovation is a disruptive innovation that serves marginalized population. The way you combine those two terms, does that suggest that normally disruptive innovation is not something we'd expect to serve marginalised populations, that it would be parts of society with more capital, the middle class, or, or those in urban areas who would usually benefit most from disruptive innovation? I think that the disruptive innovation normally try to include new underserved customers, but it doesn't necessarily mean that these populations are marginalised. They could be underserved only. So what I tried to focus on, what we try to focus on in the paper, is that uh, those disruptive innovation that focuses on marginalized population. What would be some examples of disruptive and inclusive innovations? I think the very good example, and which is very popular in Indonesia, probably is financial inclusion. It has been said that uh, 64% of the Indonesian population have not have a bank account. And much of the services nowadays try to include them uh, using different means besides 
bank, like mobile phone or like kiosk intermediary where you can deposit money and then trying to have money transferred to somewhere else and be accessible to e-commerce, for instance. So I think this is one of a sort of disruptive, inclusive innovation because this is a type of innovation that hasn't existed earlier. It created value. It included the marginalized population and also there were underserved customers. That's a really interesting example, particularly when you highlight that situation of more than half of the population not having a bank account. Who tends to identify those opportunities and, I guess, initiate disruptive and inclusive innovations? I think it is now so-called social entrepreneurs, but entrepreneur in general terms, that sort of identifies the market needs and then try to also identify the factors that enables, the means that enable to make something happen in a market. So they are the person who sort of intermediates the demands and the means to realize, and then they have to intermediate also and interact with the financier to get the finances and then make things happen. So perhaps uh, the social entrepreneurs are one that initiate initial action on these things. Calling those people social entrepreneurs, does that imply that their primary goal is not profit, it is social impact? Or how do those two elements tend to, I guess, interact? I mean, I think the social entrepreneur, they try to do something good to the society, but I don't think that they are non-profit. If it's non-profit, then there will be a philanthropy or NGOs. But social entrepreneur is a one that seeks both profit and the benefit, social benefit, or meeting social agenda, social challenges. I think these kind of entrepreneur are quite increasing and also it becoming to be an important in a growing middle income country like Indonesia because that the market is probably expanding in that sector, trying to meet the people's needs. You mentioned contact with a financier was one of the preconditions to get disruptive and inclusive innovation off the ground. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to it. How would a social entrepreneur with an idea go about initiating a disruptive and inclusive innovation? Well, they need to have uh, business ideas. They need to have good skills and they also have to have a access to the finances. Yes, you're right that the finance is not the cure to everything, but it also is one of the starting points because that the venture capital often provides this know-how to the startups. So the case that I tried to look at in my paper was on the venture capital called East Venture, and they mainly focus on very early stage kind of startups or the social entrepreneur with an idea, trying to realize some of the idea into the implementation. However, suddenly they would lack some know-how about how to deal with it. And uh, what they do is that they also finance, and along with the finance, they give advices like mentoring. And also what Venture did was to try to establish the overall ecosystem, enabling environment in which these startups would actually be able to survive first, overcome the challenge, 
and to maintain its existence in the market and grow. You've highlighted there this venture capital firm, East Ventures, which, if I understand from your research, is a Japan-Indonesia joint venture. Um, Is that a company that solely focuses on these disruptive and inclusive innovations or was founded for that purpose, or could you talk us a little bit through its operations? Uh, The East Venture is a company that established in 2009, and I think there were three founders. And one of founder is the Indonesian with a Japanese background. And uh, he had a prior experience of successfully running a SNS called Mixi in Japan. And this was a, a huge hit in Japan. And uh, he brought this whole experiences to Indonesia. And he sees this digital as a kind of future. And he wanted to recreate that elsewhere before deciding on Indonesia. But he had a familiarity in Indonesia. And what he wanted to do is perhaps not a social entrepreneur, but trying to kind of start a new thing with a digital technology and then support the early stage startups because that's what he knew very well. Are the sorts of digital startups that these ventures were investing in in the early days, companies that I guess would now be household names in Indonesia? Yes, I think that the Tokopedia and the Traveloka are one of the first that they invested. And I think they are hugely successful uh, now in Indonesia. Yeah, major e-commerce and, and travel platforms. Yes, I think that they see the future of the e-commerce very early on and they invested. But it was also very unique because some of the people commented that they have invested very quickly. Like they see the business and they invested like the next day. And they have did it very agile ways of investing in, but then a lot of promising ones. And then uh, ones that are successful survived. And that was hugely successful. So uh, that was their strategy. And then it's been discussed even in the investors uh, nowadays in, in Africa. Those venture capitals investing in Africa, they are quoting or they're citing a successful case of East Venture and then they are trying to mimic that thing in Africa. They think that there are time differences between what happened in Indonesia and what is happening in Africa. So I, I think that they have done something quite significant at that time when many people are not actually doing that, but then they just initiated it quite early on. Would we call an e-commerce platform like Tokopedia and a travel booking website like Traveloka disruptive and inclusive innovations? Or is there more to East Ventures operations that more directly served or targeted marginalised groups in Indonesian society? Well, maybe they aren't, but they are disruptive. And uh, I think that what they have done afterwards could be more interesting because they tried to then expand. Like, for instance, if you are in the e-commerce and you want to expand to the market, you first target perhaps the urban dwellers, middle income with a bank account. Then you get to the saturation point. So you have to get to the other customers who may not have bank account. Then they look at a company called Kudo, which is the online, offline financial business services and that operate based on the intermediary like a kiosk. And this allowed to expand to those people who do not have a financial institution. So that it sort of 
benefited their business, but at the same time, they also included the other people who had not had the benefit of using the e-commerce. For a venture capital firm like East Ventures, is a social or inclusive mission an explicit part of the company's mission agenda, or is that more informal or incidental to its operations? I think there has been some changes over the years. At the beginning, I don't think they were having that idea. I think that the whole mission of doing business in their mind was a social agenda, so meeting to the social needs, because that if the business exists, then that means that that has some social meanings to it. However, uh, currently I see the website there, they say that their mission is to promote Indonesian economic growth and then also support the growth of middle and micro industries. And they also admit some of the social agendas. I think there is also a little bit of uh, coming to the middle ground of uh, only the profit may not serve the business, but also social mission could be an important issue for their business. They have also created some of the startup initiating from the meeting of social agenda or just kind of helping. One is Warun Pintal, which is a digitalized kiosk. And it only started, as I heard from the founder, is that they wanted to help the old lady in the kiosk that was in front of their headquarters. And uh, first thing was that they tried to put all the digital services that they have in their portfolio company. And and then soon they realized that the sales of that kiosk went seven times. And they realized that this can be a new business. So they multiplied this digitalized kiosk. And then in three years, they became 2,000. And they were included in a wholesale business. So that kind of experience probably makes them think that, okay, social agenda and business actually may go together. But of course, that is what I see from their experiences. I do find that one of the fascinating aspects of the business model that you identify in your research that, you know, not only in Indonesia, but you've looked into cases, I understand, in India and also in various African countries, that these venture capital firms don't just fund single companies like Tokopedia or Traveloka at their early stage of development, but they're essentially almost uh, financing a whole ecosystem of services to enable new customers to access things like Traveloka or Tokopedia that they otherwise wouldn't have had the access to the internet, wouldn't have had the financial services to be able to do. And so the inclusive side of that, I guess, is very clear. On the other hand, I mean, it is a commercial enterprise kind of setting up a network of services that channels customers, presumably really only or primarily into its own set of companies. Is there a downside to having one company finance and create an entire ecosystem of services like that? Or how would you see it? Yeah, I think there's always a downside in having one single company dominating the market. So the issue is becoming to be very close with what GAFA is trying to do. And the government has to somehow come in to control at some point to not to 
have kind of unfair business environment. But what I see and what you have uh, well described in the other cases, the venture capital needed to extend their activities to network because there were missing services in these countries, unlike the other developed countries. Like you have to have an infrastructure, you have to have a bank account. Everything was not packaged. So that's why they needed to extend in order for their individual invested company to survive. They needed to create an ecosystem by themselves. But uh, if the government would be a part of it, I think uh, that would be uh, great. And how do governments tend to react when a company like East Ventures comes in and starts financing the sort of ecosystem of, of companies and services that you describe? I think that now... Indonesian government is in collaboration with many of the things that uh, East Venture do. One example was uh, the Cohive, which is the rental office. And they started off, I think, and also it goes along with the government policy to reduce the traffic in urban areas because they are actually providing the satellite office spaces. Um, the other example was the one that I was mentioning in my paper, which was uh, during the COVID-19. Uh, at the early period, they had shortages in test kit. So they collaborated with East Venture and East Venture, the portfolio company like Nusantix with uh, bio knowledge and the others with the media and all this sort of joined together to raise money and then establish and um, develop the kit with the government institution. And then I think that they were able to produce their test kit within a very short time period. So it is possible to collaborate. And I remember hearing the founder saying that they had a quite amicable relationship with the government Mm. in terms of inviting investment to Indonesia together with the um, government officials when they tried to host some investors' nights. Certainly when you look at their website now, you see them claiming endorsements from a range of the most senior members of the Indonesian cabinet. So the suggestion of an amicable relationship with the Indonesian government is certainly there. Nevertheless, in a country like Indonesia, I guess there's this still a very strong idea of the state leading research, leading innovation And so I guess over the past couple of years, the Indonesian government has established this national agency for research and innovation, BRIN, which itself has a mission to increase Indonesia's capacity for innovation, to apply that for economic and inclusive growth. Uh, What is the ideal role of a government in a middle-income country like Indonesia with respect to this private sector-led innovation? Um, Is it simply to support and enable it? Is it to try to lead innovation itself? How do those sort of dynamics typically play out? I think the government usually have uh, important roles to play. And the first is to kind of prepare the enabling environment way in which the companies can be able to operate. The other is to invest in human capital or the knowledge. Well, it takes a long time. So it's not a viable kind of investing option for the private company. So these are the things that the government needs to be kind of investing in. That's sort of like a public goods. And I think that the research is one of the uh, very important aspects of the government role 
that needs to be played. And the third one would be the regulatory role. And that also has to come in in a right time at the right strength. Regulation in terms of these companies are opening up new markets or, or what sort of regulation is required? Well, it could be a safety regulation in the product that they produce, or it could be the what you have said, that the, the dominance in the market, whether they can pay a trade. And there are diverse set of regulations that needs to be set. And these regulations, if they have designed well, they can promote innovation. For instance, environmental regulation, it can be prohibited, but then it can also encourage companies to direct their effort to certain directions of the product. And that makes it easier for the capable company to invest in certain directions. And this would also be enhanced by the research capacity that are developed in universities or the university graduate that are coming out from these universities. And the research has to be, therefore, maintained and be able to be available to be used when the necessity comes along in the private sector. But in the middle time, the regulation can be sort of like, how do you say, adjusting device to make it happen, I guess. When you describe that set of measures that governments can take to support disruptive and inclusive innovation, you know, creating a better enabling environment, enhancing human capital, regulation to protect the environment and worker rights that enables opportunities for investment. It's quite an ideal type set of steps that uh, I, I wouldn't say we always observe from a government in a country like Indonesia where you have a fairly weak rule of law and a lot of predatory business interests operating within the government. How likely is it that governments in the countries where you've looked at disruptive and inclusive innovation will respond in that way to support the scaling up of those innovations? Yes, you're right that these things may not come as it's supposed to be. Um, uh, there are some ways to readjust and then there will be uh, some corruptions or they may need more transparency in how the government reacts. I think there also uh, the new type of business or the use of digital technology may play enhancing transparency. I think that in case of India, there were mobile phone uh, number where they can claim that some of the corruptive activities of the government, so they can report that and then they publicize it in some kind of website. So uh, this kind of activity may find a way to sort of change the government behavior to a certain degree. It would take some time, but I think that if there are a means to it, I think there will be some impact. The difficult operating environment notwithstanding, you did mention at the outset of our discussion that there are an increasing number of social entrepreneurs pursuing this sort of disruptive and inclusive innovation. What sort of scale have these efforts or, I guess, enterprises reached? Are they at the stage where they would significantly transform the sort of problem you mentioned of, of more than half of a population not having access to financial services or the other gaps in services that societies face? I mean, it is very difficult to kind of measure the scale of it. And so indeed, with the financial inclusion, that can be somehow measured if they calculate the, um, the people 
who uses the e-commerce without the bank account. But I don't have that figure and I don't remember seeing it. But I think that East Ventures uh, website somehow say that they have contributed 1.5% of the GDP, which is the scalable sort of measurement that they had. But I don't know how accurate they are. Uh, so it is difficult to kind of measure the scale. But certainly you're suggesting through your research that that scale can be increased if governments do act to support these sorts of uh, innovations. Yes, I think that they do have a role to play in uh, producing the enabling environment and acting together in the same direction with the startups or the venture capitals. And of course, without the corruption. And if it all comes together, then it would probably scale up. You mentioned earlier that venture capital firms operating in Africa have looked to the outcomes that each ventures have achieved and seen this as something to emulate in those contexts. Uh, conversely, in looking at the examples of disruptive and inclusive innovation that you've researched in Africa as well as India, are there lessons or parallels that Indonesia could draw on in expanding that sort of innovation within its borders? I thought a lot of similarities in three countries. I cannot really imagine what would be the lessons to it, but then all three countries are the growing developing countries with a young population. So it's the prospective market and the prospective needs for social services are great. And these are the places where the venture capital or the social entrepreneurs can play a huge role. And, and I think that also generates uh, interesting sort of testbed in a lot of innovation that may take place. I see a lot of potential in it, but what could be the lesson that could bring into the Indonesia to make it better? I, I cannot think right away. I'm sorry. And this may be as difficult a question. Are there particular aspects of disruptive and inclusive innovation in Indonesia in the operations of East Ventures that might have broader significance beyond just Indonesia? I don't know whether it is beyond just Indonesia, but what I find interesting and also incredible in comparison with the Japanese experience is the, the unicorns and that actually have a force in generating a new industry. When you compare the number of unicorns, I mean, unicorns are the companies which has 10 billion uh, values and are less than 10 years old. These are the new startup. And in Japan, we do have very few. And then people are worried that this is sort of like not having new energy to create a new industry. Because that we are having old type of industry, whereas the country with a lot of unicorns have energy to regenerate, recreate a new industry. I think this is a huge difference. When I think about the unicorns, because unicorns started off with the early investment of East Ventures, and the East Ventures had actually generated a whole ecosystem so that they are able to operate. And that would have been, in my view, a huge contribution because in Indonesia, for their income, they do have a lot of unicorns compared to any other ASEAN countries. And that is very interesting. Of course, Indonesia is also a populous country, most populous country in ASEAN. So that could 
explain that. However, not just having a population would not make it possible. I think there has been some kind of intermediary that happened. And so it's a kind of coincidence of the history. But I do think that having a unicorn probably had changed the course of development in Indonesian industry. Looking to the future, I think it would have a very interesting development, giving rise to um, financial inclusion, fintech, or new services. And it's a island nations, so these services are going to be required. And uh, with that, we'll have an interesting development from now on. Sounds like maybe a future piece of research for you that we'll have to get you back on the podcast to talk about at some stage in the future. I hope so. And I, I hope also to go to Indonesia to see these things. Uh, nowadays, I think we are very isolated. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's been a very strange couple of years. Now, Michiko, there's a lot more I could ask you, um, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia to share your insights today. It's been great. You're very welcome. That was Professor Michiko Izuka from the National Graduate Research Institute for Policy Studies, or GRIPS, who of Gerald Hane is the author of a three-country study on disruptive and inclusive innovation, and we'll put the link in the episode notes to the article. Keep an eye out for the Policy and Focus tagline for future instalments in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia. Policy and Focus episodes are edited by Eric van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham, and appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Don't forget, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Indonesia returns on 3 March with my co-host Dr Gemma Purdy. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.